Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Brand new episode for you. This episode is about history. So in this episode, we are looking back into the past and basically finding some really interesting stories to tell you. Uh, The episode is called Paris Stories with Amber Minogue. Of course, you know Amber, don't you? If you're a long-term listener, mid-term listener, or maybe even a short-term listener, even if you're brand new to the podcast, you may have heard Amber's most recent appearance, which was uh, with uh, Paul Taylor. The two of them are the pod pals. When the three of us get together, we become the tangential trio and we have conversations that go off in different directions. Uh, This time it's just Amber. And to be honest, I think you're in for a treat here today, a whole hour of Amber. And this is a chance to listen to the lovely, lovely voice of Amber Minogue for an hour uh, to talk about history, to tell some stories from Paris's history. Amber's amazing. She not only has a lovely voice, which she uses to do voiceovers and stuff, and to appear on this podcast sometimes. But also, she's incredibly well-read, especially on the subject of the history of Paris. And uh, what I like to do in these podcast episodes is provide you with interesting things to listen to. One of my aims for this project is to allow learners of English around the world to listen to more English, okay? More than just the three-minute little bit of listening that you might do in your English class, okay, or more than just, or or more than watching shows on Netflix, which you don't really understand because it's really hard to hear the dialogue, and more than just listening to the BBC News, which you don't really understand, and anyway, the BBC News reporters don't speak normal English like you, don't speak normal English like people normally do in conversation. So I want to give you things to listen to that you can that, that will hopefully be engaging enough for you to be able to focus on it for more than just a few minutes. And Amber is one of my favourite guests to talk to. Uh, you may know that she has a podcast of her own. So if you love listening to Amber talking about stuff, then you must check out her, her podcast. It's called Pan Am Podcast. I think that I don't need to explain all the details about that because Amber herself kind of talks about it a little bit. But anyway, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Pan Am Podcast. And essentially, it's about the history of Paris, stories from the history of Paris. And I was just listening to it the other day, and I thought, wow, this is great. Amber's got so many interesting stories to tell. I must invite her on the podcast and ask her to tell some of her favourite stories. And that's what you're going to get, okay? It's an hour of of Amber telling stories about the history of Paris. No more for me to add here. I hope you enjoy it. I really do. 
It was a pleasure for me to sit and just take it all in. Okay, so that's it. I hope you managed to keep up with it all and that you stay focused and you listen all the way through to the end. Okay, I'll talk to you again at the end of the conversation, near the end of the episode. I'll do a little ramble then. Okay, but that's enough for me in this introduction. And now we can now get started and talk to Amber. And here we go. So hello, Amber. Hi, Luke. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Just you th- today, then? Just me, no Paul. Where is Paul? God knows. He's uh, he's working. He's working hard. He's sh- He's got his show like three times a week. Um, and then he's going to go on tour. So he's busy. He is. He's a busy, busy man. But we, we need to get the two of you back in here. But um, um, anyway, it's you. It's you this time. Yeah. I thought that I could invite you back on the show to talk about stories, stories of Paris, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole wealth of, of knowledge and, inf- and information in your brain, because um, as well as just generally having a lovely voice, uh, you know all these things about Paris and stuff. I mean, you're a you're a registered tour guide, as probably most people yeah. know. I don't need to say that. Probably everyone knows. But yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you how come you know so much about Paris? Well, so I started um, a podcast about Paris. Well, I started guiding in Paris mm-hmm. and I thought oh, I really need to learn stuff. But there's so much to learn. You kind of it's hard to like get a grip on it. And I thought, and I like podcasts, obviously, and I thought, oh, I'll start a podcast about Paris and it'll, it'll help guide my research and bring it together. And then I'll remember it, which I do not. <laughs> yeah, it's like me, if I prepare for an episode, I'll read up on it and I'll, you know, become sort of an expert on that particular subject. And then I publish it. And then it's gone. weeks, months later, <laughs> the information's completely gone. Absolutely yeah. gone. Yeah, exactly. Some of it stays, but it is a great, it's a really great excuse because I really have like a, I mean, a problem, I'd almost say, like buying yeah. books about Paris. Like if I see a book about Paris, I want it. And so I have an enormous amount of books about Paris and people that have lived here and, you know, events and all sorts of things. And like, I mean, I and I do, I find it fascinating and I love reading the books. And each time I read one, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Obviously, forget it. <laughs> I finish yeah. the book. Uh, any favourite books about Paris? Oh, gosh. Any favourite books? There's books which are like those anthologies of Paris, which are quite nice, like the Andrew Hussey or stuff like that, which are sort of like the seven ages of Paris. And yeah. Sorry, I'm just pushing your chair. <laughs> Closer to the microphone. Listeners, you didn't get that, but I'm just, I'm still trying to rearrange the room here. And as um, very rudely, as Amber was talking, I was actually moving her chair into a slightly different position. What's going to make you more comfortable? It always there you good go. for That's me. fine. You tell me. The microphone also moves. <laughs> I'm still moving Amber's chair. Okay. We'll find the perfect spot. Sorry, what did you say about your favourite book? I was too too obsessed with moving your chair to... You've got to get the sound, you've got to get the positions right. No, yeah. I don't know, there's there's anthologies of Paris. So like, you know, the ones which are like the Seven Ages of Paris or the Andrew, I think that's by Andrew Hussey. And, and they are really good. But obviously, the more I delve into it, the more I want the deep, obscure information. There's this book called... Uh, Hidden Paris or Lost Paris, like Walk Through Lost Paris. I think that's by this guy called Leonard, Leonard or Leonardo Pitt, who actually went to Lecoq. And I love that book. That's a really fantastic book. What What makes a good book about Paris? I think precise details. Yes. And not kind of just like, Paris, it's so beautiful. It is beautiful. And I do really love Paris and walking around it. But I just, I want to get to the nitty gritty. You know, I want to get down to some sort of weird, obscure 
thing. Violent story of some kind. Yeah, I do like it a bit dark and violent. And, and I like the way you can walk past. So there's this uh, in the Marais. The Marais is beautiful. And there's this sort of wall that's sticking out of the library. And it looks like maybe it was part of that building. And you're just sort of like on your way to Cos or, you know, the Marais, you know, doing yeah. some fancy shopping mm-hmm. and having a nice time. But it's part of a prison. And this prison used to be like the women's prison. And during the revolution, I mean, just terrible scenes of like massacre that took place at this prison. And we sort of stroll past it every day. And we can touch this wall, which feels so sort of, for me anyway, kind of powerful. This link to the past of Paris, which is so long. Um, And I love that. Mm. Okay, so you started your podcast. It's called Pan Am Podcast. Yeah. Um, and does it have a particular kind of, um, what's the word for it, uh, concept? Does it have a particular kind of concept? Yes. So I try to, I sort of start, what do I say when I start? I say, you're listening to Panam, a podcast about Paris, the events that have taken place, the people that have lived here and the traces they've left behind. And what I try to do, and this is personally for me, although I don't know that I always do, in each episode is find something concrete, like find something tangible that you can see and touch and visit, which links you specifically to the story that I'm going to tell. So it could be that wall, you know, you can see that wall and touch it and be like, oh, this is the September massacres. This is where they took place. Um, And so it kind of gives some frame to the story. So, yeah, a a real thing. You use a lot of um, sound effects as well, right? You go to the locations Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, get the sounds of, like, the crows in the... in the. uh, in Pere Lachaise yeah. uh, graveyard mm. um, and other s- atmospheric sound effects. So you kind of like bring Paris to the ears of the listener kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes I do have to cheat because Paris is noisy. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you're like, well, this is the actual street, but there's loads of bloody roadworks. And so you like go around the corner. Yeah. But it's just that for me is just a way to visit those places as well, because you learn about something. Okay, If it's the Marais, you've probably been there. Mm-hmm. But um you know, there's all sorts of little corners of Paris you've not gone to. So it's kind of an opportunity to see it yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I bet that you've kind of um, discovered some interesting stories absolutely. about Paris. Do you ha- can you share a couple of those stories with us I, today? I, I absolutely can, Luke. Okay. This is the sort of stuff that you can hear, that people can hear on your podcast normally. Yeah. But we're going to get a special sort of Pan Am podcast um, crossover with Luke's English podcast today. Yeah. All right. So cool. Paris stories. Great. Paris stories. Well, and you see, the thing is, sometimes they start as one story and then you get a bit, they get a bit large. So, okay, there's a story I'd like to tell you today. Started as a story about the gibbet of Montfaucon. Do you know what a gibbet is? It's a kind of piece of wood, isn't it? No? What is a gibbet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so I do quite like a story that's a bit dark. I do enjoy it if there's a bit of death in my, in my uh, podcast. I don't know why. Violent death. Violent death. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. That's what we like. So um, a gibbet is, it's like a gallows, whereas a gallows, you'd hang someone and then you might take them down. So it's like, OK, you've you've been executed you, you, and, and now you're gone. A gibbet is specifically designed to display the bodies for an extended period of time. So people have been executed. They may have been hanged on a gallows, as mm. you said, and then they get put up on a gibbet to say to everyone, look, don't be a naughty boy or that's what will happen to you. Absolutely. They put you on a gibbet. Mm. Okay, what does a gibbet look like? What's it made of? 
So, um, and you could be you could be hanged there as well yeah. to begin with. So, mm-hmm. gibbet the gibbet at Montfaucon. So the the Montfaucon is basically Colonel Fabien today. So you okay, know Place Colonel Fabien. Of Paris, yeah. yeah, it's in the tenth. It's like the end, it's like the corner of like the tenth and the nineteenth, mm-hmm. sort of around there. And it's very nice. It's where the communist headquarters is. Okay. Um, and this used to be a big, the biggest gibbet in Paris. And so there were a few. And this one has kind of gone into legend because it's in stories like Alexander Dumas. You know, um, he talks about it and Victor Hugo. This, you know, it's in everything's in Victor all, Hugo. All of those sort of famous uh, books um, written by things like what? The Three Musketeers and... Uh, it's the, uh, the, 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 the Hunchback of Notre Dame. yes. So the Hunchback of Notre Dame, he goes over to that gibbet at yeah. the end. Spoiler. Um, it was written in 1830. I think, yeah, it, I think it's OK. It, it's not. Yeah, it's been enough time has passed since that book was written and published for spoilers. <laughs> um, so that's in it. And it's um, La Reine Margot, the Queen Margot. Okay. Of, by Alexander Dumas. But Alexander Dumas did write The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, which is a great book. Okay. So this gibbet, was it a large thing? Enormous. Lots of bodies. Huge. Really, really wow. big. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine in a in a main city like that, a whole sort of block, I suppose, like a kind of building block or a corner yeah. uh, would have been just dedicated to displaying the bodies of executed criminals. Yes, exactly. Oh, that and would have so, been a gruesome thing to see. Horrible. There would have been birds and stuff. It, exactly. Yes, exactly. And um, scavengers. People. People and animals. Right. Different yeah. kinds of animals coming to scavenge. Yes, absolutely. And people maybe trying to rob bits and pieces. Rob them and also witchcraft because this is, we're talking about medieval times. Wow. So there was, well, you know, the sort of hair of a hangman's head, you know, it's a bit Shakespeare, isn't it? Yeah, because like, um, I get, not that I know anything about witchcraft, but I think that if what I've learned is true, then a lot of it is about using certain ingredients that have a certain potency to them. Mm. And maybe the hair of a of a man who's been hanged might have been quite a potent ingredient for um, some sort of potion. Mm. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so there would have been witches and stuff coming along to scavenge. Yeah. Uh, arguably. Arguably. Yeah, yeah. But right. or, or or even their family who want to cut them down and bury them. Right. More to the point. You yeah. know, if your loved one had been hung and displayed, you know, or hanged and displayed, it's not great. So it started with that story. This story that I was about that I'm about to tell you. And so this gibbet was enormous and. Colin Le Fabien is on a hill, you, a little bit, you know. Yeah. You've got to go up the, the Grand Jobel yeah. to get to it. Yeah. So it's high and you could see it from far away. Like the whole point that displaying bodies is about telling people, OK, you know, don't do this or this is going to happen to you. And it's humiliating. And for Christians, it's, you know, terrible. I mean, for everyone. <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, getting hanged until you're dead and then being displayed then there while the, while the crows eat your flesh. Yeah, that's horrible for everyone. Yeah, Horrible for everyone. Um. And so I was interested in this and there's a song and, and it sort of has this, um, I love the way that some of these things pass into language and culture and I learn about them too, like modern culture as well, because, you know, we're not French, we live here. And I think for French people, they might have heard this because Serge Gainsbourg, he has a song where he references the gibbet of Montfaucon, Montfaucon mm. um, which is fascinating, isn't it? You know, he knows what it is, they know what it is, yeah. we don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a part so, of the culture, yeah. Exactly. So, um so I started like researching this story and like there's nothing left of this gibbet. <laughs> it, it, what is it there now? Do you know? Well, it's a roundabout. And oh, OK. The a, a, a junction, a, a, a driving junction. Yeah. A, okay. And just houses, modern 
houses. Yeah. I wonder if any of those houses are mm. haunted, Amber. Mm. Probably. Probably they're haunted. Because mm. it was there for a really long time. See, I mean, I say, do you want, do you want, I wonder if those places are haunted and you say, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know, where do you stand on that sort of thing? Do you think it's possible that there are ghosts and spirits that haunt places where people had untimely deaths and things like that? Do you think that's possible? I don't know. I mean, Colonel Fabian is not a very pleasant place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a bit of a grim roundabout. I don't know. I don't don't think so. I think maybe it depends on how well it's preserved. I mean, if the place had been pretty much the way it was before, you'd think then it would be, then it would be, more haunted because the ghosts would be like yeah it's, you did a good job it's nicely preserved yeah we'll stay here but if you build a car park there yeah it's not very chic is it for ghosts to haunt a car park they'd be like oh uh, 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 no we're not going to haunt this it's a fucking car, car park see ya what do you think uh i don't know i like to imagine mm. that ghosts are real but i don't like to believe they're real if mm. you if that makes sense does that make sense you know um when it I don't like. I wouldn't want to believe they're real because then that would be terrifying. Mm. But uh, there are times when I like to imagine it and just fantasize about about the idea. Mm. That I find to be fun and interesting. But ultimately, I don't. I hope that ghosts aren't real. I, I agree. I don't think they're real. But I think there's something about what I was saying about finding something that was there at the time of yeah which makes you feel like it's not a ghost but it it's sort of imbued with the power of that yeah it's witnessed the real event there is maybe there is some way in which ghosts can be real in the sense that stuff from the past can leave its mark on the present in some way Hmm. and that could you know just be i don't know i don't really know but um if there's some sort of some uh, a connection between the past and the present that's still there and so it still is essentially kind of able to do things in the same way that it could in the past there's a sense of it maybe a connection to a that's a bit like a haunting but yeah. en- but anyway yeah yeah so um yeah so this gibbet then so i started looking to this gibbet um and I wanted to, um, I've sort of been interested in it for a while. And there's quite a lot of famous hangings there. Um, but I came across this one guy <coughs> called um, Olivier Duclisson, the fourth. <laughs> okay, the fourth of the, of the Olivier Duclisson yeah, the fourth collection. One. Yeah, um, and it was his story that really was like, oh, this is a good story. And ended up being a double episode. So we got the sort of gibbet. Um, but it was his wife. That was the real story. So Olivier de Clisson was the fourth was uh, put on the gibbet. Was he he? hung? Yeah. What What did he do wrong? Um, Well, ooh, I mean, contentious is it? It is contentious. So we are in the 14th century, and so that's uh, and so what's going on in France? We've got the Hundred Years' War, which, in a nutshell, is basically France and England kind of going at it about who should really control France, really, and who should be king. And bearing in mind that England sort of was had land in France, you know, there was Burgundy and places in Normandy. So it's, it, France wasn't didn't have quite the same borders as it does today. But so there's the Hundred Years' War, which is going on. But Olivier de Clisson and his wife, because this is a great story, because we've so, I've met, led you astray by going down the gibbet, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we can just leave the <laughs> gibbet behind, maybe come back to it later. Because it's sort of a story. I mean, it's painted as a story of like... I, I'm terrible at burying the lead, but um, it's painted as a story of like love and revenge and vengeance and blood and all the rest of it. But um, 
this is how I got into it, so, okay. I'll, so I'll start. So there's the Hundred Years' War, which is going on at the same time. So that's that's sort of there. So England and France are kind of getting into it. And we're looking specifically at Olivier and his wife, Jeanne, and they're from Brittany. And Brittany okay. is in the northwest of France, um, and it's by the sea, and it's got this very strong culture and identity today as well. You know, people are Breton, and they say like, oh, I'm not French. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so and it did then. And so there's the war going on between England and France, the Hundred Years War, and there's also a war of Breton succession, which is basically who's going to be in charge of Brittany. So the Duke of Brittany dies, and they're like, okay, time for a new duke. So there's these sort of double wars going on. And Olivier de Clisson and his wife are really wealthy. They have got loads of land. And it's really good land because it's salt marshes. It's in in Brittany. In Brittany. Right. She came to them. This was her third marriage, Jeanne. So she has seven children. She's been married twice. So one was annulled, one died. So she comes with her family's land that she inherited, the land from her husband who died. And then Olivier has his own land. So these two have got lots of land. And the land is salt marshes, some of it, which is really valuable because salt is how you preserve food. So they're, they're really wealthy. And they've got all this lovely money and this land and they're Breton and they're nobles. So they're fancy people. And then uh, they go to war. Uh, there's some sort of skirmishes with the English. OK, with the English. With the English. So <laughs> Olivier's gang, Breton slash French, they have some skirmish with the English. And Olivier is captured and he's swapped with a prisoner swap. They say, OK, we're going to give you back the Earl of blah de blah for Olivier de Clisson. That's what they're still doing these days. Absolutely. Like one side has one prisoner, the other one another prisoner, and they switch. Okay. Yeah. And so they switch Olivier for an English dude. But then this other guy in Brittany who fancies himself the Duke, he sort of starts being a bit like, oh, we didn't... They didn't give us much money, like the ransom was very low and it felt a bit... He kind of implied that Olivier was a traitor and was working for the English. He was like a secret agent, a double agent. Yeah, he was a double agent. Sorry, I'll turn that on silent. Um, He was a double agent and he was like working for the English. This is what this other dude suggested. Mm, Yes. Who's the other dude? He wanted to be the Duke of Brittany. I can't remember his name. I think it might have been Charles. Okay, the wanted, the would-be Duke of Brittany. Yeah, exactly. And he was chums chums with the king of France, Philip. Okay. Philip of Valois. And so he he sort of says to the king, "Mm, I don't trust Olivier. You know, this feels dodgy to me. I think Olivier is double-crossing us. And so the king invites Olivier and some friends down to Paris for a jousting match. As you do. Absolutely. It's the Middle Ages. Jousting? What's that? That's when you're on two horses, you're on opposite ends. It's like in those Renaissance fairs that Americans like. And you've got the long stick and you sort of charge towards each other. Yeah, Game exactly. of Thrones. One horse on. Do they do that on game, in Game of Thrones? Yeah. Jou- jousting. They really. joust, yeah. Um, so there's uh, one guy on a horse in, with armour on, probably, or a mm. shield. Another guy on a horse, and they face each other, and they've got these huge, big sticks, jousts. Are mm. they called jousts? I don't know. I think so. And they ride along, and they have to try and whack the other person off the horse with their big stick. Jousting. Jousting, yeah, exactly. What so Olivier, he's a medieval sort of, you know, duke. He's like, Yeah, jousting. Jousting, it's my thing, isn't it? It's what I do. Yeah, so he hops off to Paris, leaves his wife, seven kids, all the land to like get on with it. He goes to he goes to Paris to to do some jousting. Joust, yeah. Because the the king is all like, Oh, you know, this particular skirmish is over, let's, you know, all celebrate with a joust. But it's a trick, it's a ploy. And he accuses him of being a traitor. 
and he uh, is found guilty because... He is a traitor? I've, I have read both, but more often I've read no. He, he absolutely wasn't. He was loyal to the crown. Okay. Why might the king have wanted to kill him? To get that land because he fancied his wife? Well, to get all that lovely, wealthy land. Yeah. You know, if you've got a lot Mm. of money and land, makes people jealous. Yeah. So was he really a traitor? Doesn't really feel like it. But he was like, you're a traitor. And they executed him. And then they hanged him. They they beheaded him. They hanged his body from the armpits off the gibbet Mm. and sent his head to Brittany, to Nantes, to the capital of Brittany. Um, as an example to everyone, to be like, this is what happens to traitors. So his wife is in a real pickle because now she's a traitor. You know, she's she's got no rights. This is the medieval times, either right. the 1300s. It's like your husband's a traitor. You, you by, Goodbye. By default, you're a traitor too because you're essentially attached to your husband. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very difficult for her and she really had very few options. She could have joined a convent and sort of kept her head down and that probably is what most women would have done but it also means that her children are now I mean screwed really because they've got no future they've gone from being wealthy land owning titles all the rest of it having this bright future to basically having nothing yeah just bastard children of a traitor absolutely and so she's like no sir not on my watch. Oh, right, really. And she gets a sword. And go, anyway. Yeah. In the movie version, probably. Well, this is it. So the thing is, there is some historical information about her, although not much because it was really a long time ago. But it has merged with modern retellings. So there was a sort of book written by this guy. So um, when was it? Was it the 19th century? I can't quite remember, but much more modern. I mean, hundreds of years afterwards, which retells her story. And it's very romantic. And you'll see why, because it's a great story. Mm -hmm. So she decides that she will not let this stand. And so she takes her children, just two of them, just Guillaume. Two of the seven. Yeah, I don't know what's happened to the rest of them. They've gone. Some of them are dead. Some of them have left. Who knows? She's taken two. She takes her two boys, um, Guillaume and Olivier, um, and she goes to Nantes to see the head of their father, her husband, and sort of swears vengeance on the king and curses the king and is just like... No way. I will find you. I will hunt you down and I will kill you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what she does. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to do it. And she's got to act quick because basically it's like, you know, she's. Yeah. They're going to come for her next. Uh, yeah. So and it's like, uh, mum, mum, what are we going to do? They're going to come and get us. No, you're wrong. We're going to get them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So she's like, right. So then she goes to this castle up in Brittany where they know her. And she's just like, oh, hey, yeah, you know me. You know me. I just want to pop in and say hi. What she, what they don't know in this castle is she's raised a sort of army. Oh. And this is a castle loyal to the guy who said to the king, who I want to say is Charles, um, that her husband was a traitor. So she goes into the castle. They're like, oh, hey, Jeanne come on in and so she pops in and then she's like not really and she lets in her her army yeah and just massacres them and steals stuff from the wow so this is the place in in where in Nantes this is somewhere in Brittany in Brittany and this is the place associated with the guy who said that her husband was a traitor to the king it was someone who was loyal to the crown and you know but it was basically just like an act of like I'm 
I'm coming for you. It's proper Game of Thrones stuff, this, isn't it? Yeah, Where completely. the wife, the wife is, yeah, like uh, her husband has been betrayed and killed. And um, and sh- they're, literally they're, there are guys on horses approaching her mm-hmm. house. And so she quickly packs a bag and puts a sword and a dagger in there, brings two of her children and off they go on a, on a mission of vengeance. The first stop is to deal, sort out the people who who um, betrayed him to the king and slaughtered them all. Yeah. And then? Well, exactly. I don't know if it's exactly the guy that betrayed him, but needless. So then she's like, okay, so she's got some money. She raises some money and she, she can't stay in France. So she takes to the high seas. Well, she takes to the channel, <laughs> which is less exciting. <laughs> she gets on a boat into the English channel, yeah? Okay. She buys a fleet of ships. Wow, really? A, yeah. A fleet? A whole fleet? A fleet. Well, at least three. Okay. I've read different numbers, but Define... she's got a number of ships. Well, a, a collective noun of ship. Yeah. If it's more than two, it's a fleet, isn't it? It's a fleet. Yeah. A small fleet of ships. And this is where we get into a sort of the, where does the story end? But this this is the story. Yeah. So she has this fleet of ships. She's, of course, in the flagship, which she calls My Revenge. She gives it a name, obviously. She paints the ships black. So they look sort of scary. So this this is one of those epic films where now yeah. now we're on boats, yeah, and it's like suddenly become a kind of a seafaring um, epic uh, pirate adventure. Yes, yeah, pirate exactly. She she, she paints the, the the boats black. Black. She paints. They're called the Black Fleet. So she paints the boats black, and then she hoists the the sails, and she, they're blood red. So she's got these red sails, these black ships, and she terrorises the coast. You know, she's she's Breton, so you can imagine she's a seafaring person. Yeah. They're sort of famous, you know, they're by the sea. Yeah. And she terrorises the, the French, the French fleets and anyone loyal to the king. And the story very much goes that when she captures a, a vessel, a French vessel, they execute everyone on board, mm-hmm. her personally, with an axe. With an axe? Is, with an axe. Wow. Decapitating, you know, nobles especially. But she always leaves one alive. One person to, to, to describe, to tell the tale to the others. Oh, my God. To tell the tale and to tell the king that she is coming. She's coming. She's coming. Now, that sounds really dramatic, but there does seem some truth that she did definitely take to the seas. Now, whether she painted the ships black and had red sails, <laughs> but there is definite sort of she was on the she was on the seas yeah so she's doing this and she's sort of terrorizing and she kind of has no choice she's got no land she's got no money yeah um and so this is what she's doing and she's doing this for a while and then finally the french fleet managed to to almost capture her and she escapes on some small vessel it gets murky but one of her children die Mm. guillaume he Mm. he doesn't make it but she makes it to england Ah. And she um, is welcomed by these records as well that they have in England of them inviting her to the court. And it's a sort of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Oh, so who's invited? um, The king of England. The king has? Yeah. He's he's decided, well, I'll, I'll make friends with her then. Well, yeah, he calls her my chère cousine Breton, my my dear Breton cousin. And she's and like, uh, sorry, did you not get my emails? I hate you. I, w- I want to chop your head off. No, no, this is the English king. Oh, the English king. She makes okay. it to England. Oh, I see. I see. I missed a beat there. Yeah. yeah so and she so gets to England. The English king's like, oh, you're hey, wonderful. You're wonderful. Because she hates the French king. Right, right. And so he's like, well, the enemy of my enemy. Give yeah. me all the lowdown 
of the French and the fleet and all the rest of it. And they give her money and ask her advice and she carries on pirating for them. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. And she's and so this is just bonkers. And then she um she marries an English nobleman. Mm-hmm. And they move back to France. Yeah. And they're able to sort of regain some lands. And um, and she dies and she's buried in France. She dies in her 60s. Wow. And, and she's buried in France. But the story is not over. <laughs> so her son, Olivier de Clisson. The one who survived. The fifth, the only one we know about. He continues fighting because it's still the Hundred Years' War. This is Olivier de Clisson, the fifth. The fifth, now. yeah. The son. Yeah who saw his father's head up on Nantes and was there when his mother made this epic sort of uh, curse to the yeah, French king. Yeah. So he carries on fighting because it's a Hundred Years' War. It's still going on. He's like, we've only been going for like, you know, 65 years. We've got a good, <laughs> still got a good 35 years of this left to go. Come on. You know, it's called the Hundred Years' War, for goodness sake. Exactly. So he carries on fighting. But uh-huh. he comes back to France and he switches sides. And he, because he was fighting with the English... Ah, yeah, of course. But he comes back and he switches sides and he starts fighting with the French. And he moves up the ranks and he's no, he gets the nickname of the Butcher. Nice. Because we can only presume that maybe some of those stories about his mother are true, that she was very... A bit axe-happy. A bit axe-happy. A bit choppy-chop, chop-chop. Yeah, exactly, yeah. because he is brutal. You know, he's he really, like, you know, he has no fear. You know, yeah. he's brought up in this sort of brutal world. Um, and he rises to the very top of the French army and becomes something which I, I don't really still understand. It's called the connetable, which is like the sort of, it's like in charge of the army, basically. He okay. gets this sort of, like, very powerful position. Commander-in-chief kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So he, and he gets back everything that they've lost and more and completely re-establishes the de Clisson name Mm. and builds this gorgeous residence for himself in the Marais. But is he not a double agent or has he completely switched sides? He's completely switched sides. What made him switch sides then? Because he was like, I was never really that keen on the English anyway. I think so, maybe. I mean, I suppose in some ways, like the Breton... uh, neither French nor English. Mm, mm. Um, And maybe he was just... Maybe his his bigger goal... I mean, we can't really ascribe their motivations. No. It happened a long time ago. But maybe his bigger goal was to sort of re-establish his name. I think that's what his mother always wanted. She wanted to sort of prove how unfair it was mm-hmm. and that she, you know, everything was taken from them, um, including their future. And she wanted it back at any price. Right. And, so it was just know, naked ambition, sort of uh, just blind ambition to... to he saw a route to get back to power and it was yeah. through the French side of the army, maybe. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And also just um, the unfairness of it. You know, his father was executed mm. and he was not, he was probably not a traitor. Yeah. And with his father's execution, his future was gone too. So what did Olivier V uh, do then in the end? So then, well, he just becomes incredibly powerful and wealthy and he builds this huge mansion in Paris in the Marais because at this time... The medieval time, so again, still we're in the 1300s. I wonder if we're already in the 14s. We've still got this. This was just at the end of the Knights Templar, which were also in the Marais. They had their huge temple. Right, the Knights Templar. Who are these guys then? I mean, this is we're switching to a new, a different, (laughs) a different pop culture franchise here, and moving over to uh, Assassin's Creed, the video game, (laughs) from Game of Thrones to Assassin's Creed. So, who who are the Knights Templar then? So the Knights Templar. So English guys, right? 
Well, no? they're, they're, they're everyone. I, I don't know they're loads everywhere. about them. So the Knights Templar, when you had the Crusades, so when you had like Christians going to Jerusalem and being like, we're going to kill Muslims in a holy war. Mm-hmm. Um, and God's OK with that. <laughs> Our God anyway. Our God's Lord. cool with that. Yeah, exactly. So when you had the Crusades and that was, you know, this sort of divine war, mm-hmm. um, you had these warrior monks, which were the Templars, and their mission was to protect the Crusaders. Warrior monks. Warrior monks, yeah. And their mission was to protect the Crusaders. Okay, Mm. so you've got the Crusaders who are the guys in armour with swords and probably red crosses on their T-shirts. And others. And And all the people that go with it, all the retinue, because you've got the the people who are cooking and carrying the bits and bobs and the water and the animals. Because it's a trundling procession of people. Yeah, a whole caravan. Leaving, yeah, yeah, from Europe and going... To Jerusalem, yeah. you know, over land and sea. Yes, of course. So it wasn't just, you know, fighters. And they didn't know the way. They didn't know what they were doing. So there was the, the, the Templars and their entourage and mm. these fighting monks as well. Who the Templars there. are the fighting the monks. The Templars are the pro- fighting monks. Mm. But they're there to protect who? Just everyone. The Crusaders. The Crusaders. And the, oh, the Crusaders are the missionaries. Yes. Right. These are like monks going out there to try and convert everyone to Christianity. And they're like, and if you don't, uh, this guy, see the guy with the huge sword? Yeah, he will chop your head off. So, you know. Well, some of them would have been like soldiers or be would have been able to sort of fight, but some of them wouldn't. Okay. And so the Templars were specifically holy because they were monks, but they were also warriors. So they simultaneously prayed and trained. Prayed and killed. Prayed and killed. Praying and killing. Praying and killing. Yeah, exactly. And so that was their whole gig. You know, that's what they were doing. And then Jerusalem was taken by Saladin, right? I believe, and um, and basically the, the the sort of Crusades came to an end. There was no reason they could, they stopped going on them. But the Knights Templar, in creating these links, had also created trade routes and essentially established banking, international banking, and so they became sort of banker monks, and they had loads of money. So. Um... Praying and and banking. Praying and banking. Yeah, exactly. They were like the first bankers. Okay. And the the Templars <coughs> in Paris, they had loads of money. And Paris in the early 1300s was essentially the Ile, Ile de la Cité. So where Notre Dame is, that was like where the king was. And that's where most people lived. And the Marais was not really, it was outside Paris. It sort of wasn't really... Paris. What is, what is Marais in English? It means marsh. Right, so it's kind of like a marshland yeah. outside the centre of the city yeah. at the time. At the time. And so the Knights Templar, they drained the marsh and they built a castle, basically, and they built a sort of city within a city. So you had like the king with his money and his sort of stuff going on. Mm. And then you had the Knights Templar with their much more money yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. their sort of network, huge network, just on his doorstep. And he was not keen. We're like, dude, we're going to build a Muji. We're going to have an H&M. There's going to be a Starbucks, but lots of other cool shops and things. And the king's like, what? What? Yeah, exactly. He was like, we're not, I don't like this. I'm not into this. Yeah, so uh, the Knights Templar were there. They had all this money. and, um, And, but it also made the Marais in the Middle Ages, quite a sort of interesting, important place, which is why we presume Olivier de Clisson built his house there in the Marais, just down the road from the Knights Templar, because it's now, you know, the archives, the French, the archives yeah. museum. And yeah, the, I do. The, it's part of that. Ah. There's a little bit left that you can still see, which is part of his original building. 
I see. And the rest I of it's sort of modern and been sort of, well, relatively modern, you know, and, 17th century. And um, how does that connect up with the thing you mentioned before, which was the moment when the prisoners were uh, executed, that's, female prisoners just nearby? It's just around the corner. Just around the corner from there. But that's that's a separate time. That's a separate that's, time. That's sort of uh, revolution stuff the, in the 18th century, uh, I guess, right? Okay, but still pretty good story about Olivier de, what was his name? Clisson. Clisson, the fourth and the fifth. Yeah. And the sort of uh, the way that uh, Olivier V managed to get his uh, reputation and, and the wealth back. Yeah. Yeah. All and right. you can still see like a little bit of his house that yeah. he built there. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. What a story. Isn't, isn't it story. insane when you think about how people used to live yeah. hundreds of years ago, how brutal and uh, like sadistic and nasty and cruel and violent everything was? How did anyone actually survive or get anything done? I don't know it was more brutal and sadistic. Really? I, well, I, I think the thing, it was more boring and, uh-huh. and grim. But, I mean, public executions, gibbets with bodies hanging from the, from the roof. I know, yes, of course, that's horrible, um, the execution sort of aspect to it. But, I mean... I don't know. I think. I mean, you mean they didn't have TikTok, so it was more boring. Is that? Well, you're just like these repetitive days. Like if you were not wealthy, repetitive days of like, oh yeah, here we go, nothing to eat, another rat, oh another dead guy hanging off the roof, just a normal day, just normal repetitive, boring day, regular day. You've got very limited options, don't you? <laughs> yeah, true. Of what you can do, and even how long you can do I mean, it. How many TV channels were there? At zero that time? TV None. channels. Like not even one, just zero. But even the length of your day, like if you were an apprentice, let's say. You're in Paris and Paris is, I mean, Paris is pretty dirty and grim and just all the things that could kill you. Just anything that you like think all the, of. All the air pollution. <laughs> all the air pollution. <laughs> all the <Yeah>. cigarette smoke. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just, it's just long and, you know, you, yeah. you're an apprentice and you're doing these things and they're dirty and dangerous. And when the sun goes down. There's no light. It's just, well, what are you going to do? Just go to bed and just hope that there are no rats yeah. Yeah. Wow. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Would you, if you could, would you, would you like to visit a certain historical period in, in French history or Parisian history? If you could go back to a certain time, would you do it? Would it be too dangerous? Absolutely. I would totally go back. I would love to, but I mean, you you kind of want to be able to sort of just walk around for a day and yeah. then leave and obviously not make any sort of, you know, time traveling impact, anything like that. <laughs> but yeah, definitely just be like, okay, we're going, having a look around. Loads of times. There's loads of times I'd like to see. Example? I think I'd love to see Paris before it was renovated by Hausmann. Houseman. Houseman. So uh, you'd like to go and see Paris before it was renovated by um, Dave Houseman. 
Eugene. 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 Baron. Baron Houseman. Yes. Houseman uh, who redesigned and rebuilt lots of the city, making it very uniform and uh, with these large, elegant, terraced uh, buildings. So before then, when was that then? When did that happen? Um, well, it started in the sort of late 1800s. Okay. And then carries on, even though Houseman and Napoleon III get sort of nixed, it carries on up and, you know, the projects carry what on. What happened to Houseman? I think he was... Did he have his head chopped off, did he? No, no, there was no head chopping off. Um, what, what happened to Houseman? That's a good question. I think he was sacked. People got a bit upset. Um, but it was Napoleon III, so he was the person in charge, Napoleon III. And then they go to war with Prussia. Never a good idea. Not a good idea. Prussia wins. Prussia wins. And so... Uh, Napoleon, Napoleon is sent to England. He's right. exiled to England. The worst punishment the, worst, the French could think of. The worst punishment the French person could think of. You have to go to England mm. and uh, speak British English. And then the English sent him to St. Helena, right? To a little island in the middle of no, nowhere. No, you're confusing no. him with the other. I was talking about Napoleon, and I, but that's a different Napoleon. Two there's, Napoleons. There's two Napoleons. Just, yeah. yeah just do, you, do you want to know about the two Napoleons? Well, go on then, because th this is because we were talking about Haussmann, mm. and you said you'd like to visit Paris before it got renovated by Haussmann, and then it was like, who is Haussmann? Mm. And uh, it's, it's Osman, it's not Haussmann. Uh, that's one of my stand-up bits about Houseman. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, and uh, I said, what happened to Houseman? And you said, because he was like kind of mates with Napoleon III, who invaded Prussia, bad move, mm. and that didn't go well. So I guess when Napoleon III, what happened to Napoleon III? Well, he gets exiled. He gets exiled to England. Yes. Right, exactly. Um, where he has to eat like bad food in mm. bad weather and all the rest of it. It's <laughs> the French, every French person's nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but then... So so all of his cronies also had to kind of run away or something, did they? Like Houseman basically was like, all right, so um, I guess our boss is gone. So see you guys. What did he do? Well, so you had Napoleon III. He gets sort of exiled. Everything goes wrong. And that's 1870. And then there's that big uprising, the Commune, all drama, which is complicated. And then France goes back to being a republic Okay. after that. Um, but... Hausmann's project, we call it Hausmann, the style of architecture, Hausmannian architecture. Like this building, right? Yeah, absolutely, like this building. And so he's sort of started that. He sets that in motion. And even though he's not there to oversee all of it, it doesn't matter. You know, the wheels are in place and they've all they've all gotten bored with this. You know, Hausmann's sort of the prefect which decides, OK, we're going to make these straight lines. We're going to do all of this. But, you know, I think everyone was like, yeah, this is the style we're going for and this is what we want to do. And so the projects continue. So you mm. see in Paris, a lot of the buildings are early 1900s because a lot of the architects write their names into the buildings and you'll see they'll be 1901, 19 whatever. Students and so of Hausmann. Students of Hausmann. It's all part of that same project mm. which starts in the late 1800s. Okay, so that's that's the Napoleon the Third and his mate Hausmann. Mm. What happened to the other Napoleon? Napoleon the Fourth? <laughs> Napoleon the First? Napoleon Bonaparte? The, the main, the big Napoleon. The, main, the, the, well, the small Napoleon. The big, Napo small Napoleon. The, the one who's actually quite as short, the one that everyone knows. That's Napoleon the First, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's Napoleon the First. Yeah. So Napoleon Bonaparte, he, he comes about at a really interesting time. So you have the French Revolution in 1789. Yeah. And, I mean, it's huge, isn't it? Because yeah. they are grappling with what they're going to do. So they don't have a revolution and immediately decide to become a republic. There is a period of struggle where they think maybe we can be a constitutional monarchy. 
and we can still have a monarch, but it's gonna you're gonna we're gonna do things differently. But that doesn't work out. And mm. that's when all the heads roll and the republic is created. The first republic. And so France goes from being a monarchy and everything that that entails to becoming a republic, this radical change. And France is the centre of Europe in many ways. And all around Europe, there's kings and queens, you know, Spain and Britain and everyone is like... And they're all shitting themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> they're just like, whoa, uh, what? Oh, hold on, France, we're not yeah. sure. I don't think you wanted to do that. Austria, all of these people, they're just like, no, sir. And so France is kind of in this big mess you know it's messy the republic and the and the revolution and everyone losing their heads and the french want everything to be different and it's just it's kind of like a bit of a nightmare and also when you go from a model where um it's been it's power is completely centralized around one person a monarch and then you go to a republic mm. you might end up in a republic in which there is kind of one guy in charge of everything too because that's sort of the natural order everyone's like ah yeah okay you 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 be in charge mm. um uh, is that what kind of what happened well kind of i mean into the breach steps napoleon you know into the chaos into the void mm. steps Napoleon, okay. And Napoleon Bonaparte, he's got a very complicated legacy. You know, he sort of splits opinion left and right. You know, the right are a bit more pro-Napoleon. Um, although I think that he did quite a, quite, a, quite a lot. I mean, he did a massive amount. And, it, you know, people think that Napoleon really waged war and was this big warmonger. When really it seems very much that the rest of Europe were very keen to sort of show France that they can't just have a revolution and that they wanted the monarchy to be returned. Mm. Napoleon was a brilliant man in in the real genuine sense of the word. Like he was an exceptional man. Now he did exceptional things. Like at a very young age, he had this incredible vision and foresight. You know, he renovates, he completely changes the whole the the schools, the banks, the the law system. The army, he's a great general, you know, he's got these incredible sort of ideas and tactics. So he does sort of this fantastic job. And I think the French are, like you said, a bit keen to get behind one man because the difference between an emperor and a king is is ridiculous. It's, it's just a question of how they got there. You mm. know, the king is sort of hereditary mm. and the emperor, he sort of like stands up and says... You know, oh, we'll have a democracy. Actually, it's me now. I'm going to be... I'll have a de democracy, but you all have to agree to do what I say. Yeah. That kind of democracy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so he sort of does... Um, he does an awful lot, but then he's defeated in with Russia. So that didn't go well for him. And yeah. that's when he's first exiled to Elba, which is Italy, basically, a little island off of Italy. Um, and then he comes back. He comes back. He sort of whips Elba into shape and then is like, I've had enough of this. I'm going back to France. And so he goes back to France. And in the meantime, the French have reestablished the monarchy. And um, Napoleon... And he's like, but, 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 but he arrives. Well, he's like, Napoleon, well, I mean, Napoleon arrives and the king knows he's on his way and sends the army to go and capture Napoleon. And Napoleon, much loved by the army sort of says, you know, whoever, I mean, that's what they say, you know, whoever would kill your emperor, you know, here I am. And the army turn around and carry him triumphantly back to Paris because they're pleased as punch. Yeah, He's back. He's an army it. man, you yeah. know. He's all about the army. Yeah. And so then he takes over again the 100 days and then Waterloo. Waterloo. Yeah. How did you feel when you won the war? Down, down, down. What, ABBA released? That, ABBA released Waterloo. This famous Eurovision Song Contest winning yeah. hit, Waterloo. Yeah. 
Um, Which England gave them nul point for. That's, that's 1970. Um, <laughs> that's not 18. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> 17. We're in this. We're in the late 18th century, not the late uh, 20th century. Uh-huh. Anyway, so when Waterloo happened. Waterloo happened, and then he's exiled to Saint Helena. Which Waterloo is was, tiny... a, was, a, was a big naval battle between the English Ooh. and the French. Not naval. No, no not naval. Not naval. Okay. Uh, 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 what You're thinking think naval? Trafalgar. I'm thinking Trafalgar. Aren't yeah, yeah, I? yeah. It was okay. in Belgium, Waterloo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in fact, it was it was the problem with rain and cannons, if I recall, was a big, big problem. Maybe I think Waterloo, I think water, water, you see. So, you know, where's the battle? Where did the battle take place? On the water and in the loo, maybe, mm. I don't know. But no, it's a place in Belgium and it was flooded, was it? And they were trying to kill each other and it's like, oh, God. One of the problems was that it had been raining, I think, the day before. And so how Napoleon got his heavy artillery out, there was stuff like that so happening. So then infrastructure issues, uh, mm. that's their excuse anyway, to losing to the uh, the British. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, and then so that was the end of Napoleon. End of Napoleon. One. End of Napoleon one, and then he was exiled to Saint Helena, which is miles away. Yeah, it's way down in the South Atlantic, in mm. the middle of the nowhere. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. Okay. How did we end up getting to this? I don't remember now. Because you said, "Would I go back in time?" Would you go back? And we in got time? confused about who the Napoleons were. Yeah, we did, but you cleared that up. Uh, thank you. And so you'd go back to that just pre-Housemanian period, just to see what Paris looked like. Uh, back in the day before it got all sort of cleaned up and uh, housemanized. Yeah. Yeah. What did it look like in those days then? Well, I think if you look at the Latin Quarter and you look at parts of the Marais, you can see, you know, it's it's what Houseman was doing was making wider streets, cleaner, wider streets, because it's very charming now, those narrow streets. Mm-hmm. But we have bathrooms and indoor plumbing. And so I think they were pretty smelly and disgusting. In those days, they were throwing their, their, their waste out into the street mm. and the streets would have been muddy and disgusting. And dark. And dark. Yeah. yeah. So that's why he made them wider, more uniform. Uh, with more more infrastructure, some lights. That's why it's called the City of Lights, isn't it? It was the first European capital to have gas lights. Gas lighting, yeah. It's got, it's called the City of Lights because of gas lighting. And there's an, also another feeling that it's because of all the, the enlightenment. Right. And the sort of intellectuals, because Paris is a very old university. And so all the sort of lights of European thinkers kind now, of came here. And now it's because of all the, the traffic lights. <laughs> the useless traffic You, you can't lights. drive down the street without hitting about 10 red lights along the way which a lot of drivers just jump straight through mm. um okay so yeah you'd so yeah the the more grotty um slightly more ramshackle version of paris because well, we see paris now don't we we see houseman's paris yeah and it's not changed like paris is a city which doesn't change much it's sort of changed radically and it's very rare to find in paris something that changes yeah that's strange it's a place that's known for radical change and yet these days it stays the same yeah Yeah. it's not like london you know because london had a moment where it was reborn it's a lot bigger it's got lost you know it's a lot wider but it was bombed so much in the war that you had all this sort of suddenly this new space and and the whole of the east end i mean even when i was in london you know i had a friend who lived in hackney and it was a nightmare getting there but it was also it felt poor where exactly now you know it's changed a lot so yeah 
London feels like it changes a lot. I mean, Paris gets more expensive, but it feels like it doesn't change a lot. In fact, if anything, it just they they make they're very good at protecting it and keeping it the same. Mm. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what did it look like before? Would you go back? Would you see a different time? Um. Hmm. Maybe. Um. I mean, obviously, I'd I'd bring a packed lunch with me. Because, you know, I'd be curious to go back to various times, but I feel like it would be difficult to get food and there'd be disease everywhere and it'd be all disgusting. And I feel like I said before that in the past things were a lot more brutal. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I turned up sort of speaking wrong uh, with the wrong clothes and just turned up in some village somewhere that within half an hour they would have um, killed me and burnt me as a witch or something Mm -hmm. like that, especially if I got my phone out. Yeah. You know, um, so I don't know if I would last very long. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd like to have a look at what was going on. What I'd like to do is take a helicopter and fly over Paris during the during the uprising and just sort of observe what's going on and just sort of like have a look at it all. During the revolution? Yeah. Mm. That would be quite exciting, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to actually be on the ground in case Absolutely I got not. caught up in all, of the, all the violence. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, great stories. There really are, good. are good stories. There's yeah. always good stories. Fantastic stories. Okay. So um, uh, how, have you told those stories on your podcast? Yeah. So I just did one about Paris being the city of lights. So that was the last episode. Um, Jeanne de Clisson and the gibbet. Yep. That was um, a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, did we talk about Napoleon? I mean, they come up all the time, don't they? That's a really good history lesson for me, though, because I, nev- I didn't know about Napoleon very much and I knew that there were Napoleons mm. not just one is it really just two main ones I mean there was a th- Napoleon the second as well but like so, well, Napoleon the second is it's a bit like kings so when the king Louis the 16th was the last king and then when the monarchy is re-established they have they they jump to Louis the 18th why because Louis the 17th if you were a monarchist if you believed in the royal family then Louis the 17th son Louis the 16th son on his death automatically became king and Louis the 17th and even though he died when he was quite young he died in prison after his father died but after the revolution he was still alive at I one see. point and so they say well he still counts yeah 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 i see and so napoleon the third is the nephew of napoleon the first so napoleon the first was also a dynasty maker he wanted to have he wasn't just going to be like okay i'm emperor and now someone else can be emperor he yeah. wanted a dynasty and so he marries an austrian princess which must have been like really the can you imagine i know just being like she'd be so miserable wouldn't she is that what you mean? Well, I An mean, Austrian princess. She would be a real pain in the ass, I'm imagining. <laughs> but I mean, her aunt was just executed, like, just a few years earlier. Even worse, she'd be in a really bad mood. And she's just like, well, apparently Napoleon was all like, I want to, like, who's the most sort of established? Because he's new, so he wants to be established. And she's like, I'm going to marry an Austrian princess. And they were like, no. And he was like, you have no choice. I'm Napoleon. And they were like... Okay, go for it. Have a great wedding. And so he marries this Austrian princess and they have a son. Okay. And the son dies. Okay. And so he would have been Napoleon II. Do you want to hear a story about Napoleon II? Of course, yeah. This is the, the Napoleon II is the son who, who dies. Who, who dies. Sa- he never becomes sad. emperor. It's sad. But how did he get on with his, um, his Austrian princess wife? Though? Oh, they seemed all right. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, being very unfair to Austrian princesses there, obviously, me. I think Napoleon's quite a cutie. I mean. Yeah, yeah really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it gets a bit fat, but like, you know, who yeah, doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, so his so, son. So who... his son, well, after he's exiled, 
his wife goes back to Austria mm. with their son, who dies when he's quite young. Mm. So he would have been Napoleon II, and Napoleon III is Napoleon I's nephew. So okay. he sort of says, I... Um, carrying on the dynasty because he too needs a legitimate reason. You know, he starts off being elected. He's like, I'm just here as the first council. Now I'm emperor. Yeah, you need, if, you, if you're going to put yourself in that position of being like the supreme commander, then you need a pretty good reason other than just like, well, I just turned up when the job was advertised. Yeah. It needs to be like, it was my father, my father's father, or my father's father's father. Blood needs to be involved. Absolutely. There needs to be some sort of blood contract, isn't there, to, to make it, you know, uh, legally binding. Exactly. I mean, this is the whole thing about monarchy and all the rest of it and so emperors do and so he says my legitimate claim to emperor is my uncle was Napoleon and he did okay and you all loved him and like, and they, I'm Napoleon too you see same name same 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 and he was not wrong you know the French they did like Napoleon I mean some people did some people didn't but like so he dies young but Napoleon Bonaparte is buried as you probably know in the in the um in the invalid in the under the golden dome in Paris, you know, mm. there's that big the museum, the army museum, which was yeah. a hospital. It's also a mausoleum for just, all military people. Just next to where I work, in fact. Yes. From many of my classrooms, I get a view of the Invalides. Beautiful. Yeah. Really breathtaking, and so Napoleon is buried there, and so is his son. And Napoleon dies in 1820, and he's brought back to France in 1840 in December 1840. Quite a long time. The British didn't want to send him back because remember it's the British that were keeping him prisoner. He was in Saint Helena in the in the South Atlantic when Is he it died. The Atlantic or the Pacific? It's the Atlantic. Oh, I'm so glad you know because that is very vague to me. Definitely. Um, but he was being guarded by the British, and so they kept him. The French wanted him to be sent back his body, and the British didn't want it because they knew that he was sort of. A, they were going to worship him and kind of make him into a cult. Sort of like Darth Vader's helmet in uh, the Star Wars prequels. Absolutely like Darth Vader. It's an object that could potentially be quite um, significant and potent. Yeah. Right. So the the body of Napoleon, if it was brought back to France, it might rouse the French a bit more. And the English are like, no, 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 just keep it in this little island in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Even after his death, they were concerned about his power. Yeah. And so finally, he's brought back to France. And um, it was a the monarchy again in France they had a big procession everyone turns out and they bury him in the invalid like he had wanted and then a hundred years later so that was 1840 so a hundred years later we're in 1940 what's going on in France uh, World War Two is really digging in and who's point. in charge oh uh, Adolf Hitler is, and where's is, he from he's from Austria exactly and he's a big fan of Napoleon he really is and so he does a arguably touching gesture and he reunites father and son a hundred years to the day and he brings Napoleon's son's body and it's also buried in the invalid and that was his um his doings oh okay okay wow Ooh, it's that uncomfortable that was nice of him I know right I think I, <laughs> yeah exactly okay well 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 so no sign of any any other Napoleons after the third one the third one was the one who was the nephew, not the yeah. one who got buried by Hitler with his dad. Yeah. But the nephew who went on to, um, um, what was it again? 
renovate Paris. Renovate Paris, exactly, with the help of Houseman. Houseman. Uh, who makes houses. That's <laughs> yes. that's his job. Okay. Yes, exactly. The, the stories keep going and keep going. This is wonderful. But um, I guess that people should uh, listen to Pan Am Podcast if you want more of this stuff with some with some crow noises in the background yeah. sometimes. <laughs> Have you been with me when we've collected crow noises? Uh, uh, yeah, maybe. Didn't we go to Père Lachaise uh, and yeah. you, you recorded some crows? Yeah, they really are crows. Yeah, real crows. Père Lachaise feels like... Um, like a ridiculous cemetery. Well, it feels like you're in a Tim Burton movie. Doesn't yeah, it? if someone was going to write a cemetery straight out of central casting, like a sort of gothic cemetery, you'd choose Pelleshez. It feels like it's made up, but it's it's real. Yeah, and um, there are a few famous people buried there, aren't there? Like Jim Morrison, famously, mm. is buried there, and who else? Edith Piaf, Oscar Wilde, Proust. Um, there's Sting. Sting. <laughs> don't know why. I don't know why I said that. I thought you were going to start going into like famous people with one name: Proust, um, Prince, Sting, Beyonce. That would be good. Yeah. Um, and lots of artists, you know, and politicians and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so Jacques Louis David and Jericho, Ang, they're there. Delacroix, he's there. Uh, loads of French people, obviously. <coughs> um, some Americans, I think. Apart from Jim Morrison, there's ballet dancers, all sorts of famous people. Wow. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Amber. Thank you for coming and telling us a couple of great stories. Very long stories. It's <laughs> really good. The stories weaved in and out of each other like this. <laughs> they were, yeah, they were complicated. That was great. So uh, we still need to go to the orangery. So you can tell us about the um, water lilies. Yeah. Monet's water lilies. So we've got Monet's water lilies and we've got, um, yeah, we should go to the orangery. It'll be fun. We should do more cultural visits in Paris where you can tell us things and educate Paul Taylor and me. Yeah. That Mainly be... Paul Taylor. Yeah, I guess so. Any yeah. Paul... I've got a quiz for you. I've got an orangery quiz. Oh, really? Yeah. Great. Okay, so that's going to come at some point as well, listeners. Mm. All right. Thank you, Amber. That was brilliant. And uh, yeah, listen to her podcast, everyone. Mm. It's Thank like you. properly decent and everything. Yes. Well, thank you, Luke. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. It's always great to talk about the stories because I love them. Okay, so that was Amber Minogue talking all about Paris and some of its weird and wonderful stories. Don't forget, you can check out Amber's podcast. It's called Pan Am Podcast. That's spelt P-A-N-A-M-E. That's Pan Am. And podcast. I think you know how to spell podcast, but actually maybe you don't because the number of times people write in comment sections or emails to me, um, they write to me, people write to me and tell me that they've been listening to my show and they misspell podcast all the time. I suppose it's a bit of a weird word, but that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, right? Podcast, not podcat not podcast <laughs> uh, or one, or postcard or one of the other things that people often write. Oh, and by the way, just in case you haven't heard me say this before, uh, the spelling, the correct spelling of my first name is L-U-K-E. That's Luke. Okay. Not luck, not look, uh, not, what did I have the other day? L-U-C-E, which would be loose. So none of those things. L-U-K-E, please. Yeah. All right. So Pan Am podcast, that's where you can listen to more of Amber's intriguing stories about Paris and its history. Okay. All right. Good, 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 good. All right. So I suppose I'll have a little ramble at the end here. I'm stuck in a time loop, but I'm not going to go on about that 
anymore because all of the ending parts of these episodes where I kind of record the ending rambles for these audio episodes, all of these, I've been talking about how I'm stuck in a time loop, so I don't want to keep repeating myself. Instead, what what am I going to say? Well, I don't know. I, I was just I just had lunch, right? So I just had a, I just popped out and had my lunch in a local place, and I was just walking home, and I was thinking to myself, I am lucky to have this podcast, and also, I feel it's quite extraordinary, really, that uh, that I've got this and I've got this audience. I've said these things before, but the the reason I feel like it's sort of extraordinary is because here I am talking, and people are actually listening to me. But for like years in my life, I always felt like I was a really bad talker. I still feel like that today, to be honest. Maybe that's why I ramble. You know, maybe that's why I kind of struggle to get to the point sometimes. I've turned that into my 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 calling card. That's like my trademark now that I'll kind of ramble and ramble and one idea leads to another. I don't Maybe I don't finish a thought because I end up talking about something else and I find it hard to focus perhaps, but that's all right because that's that it, somehow I've turned that into an engaging thing that people seem to enjoy listening to. Um, but for years, I always felt like I just really couldn't express myself and I get very frustrated when trying to talk and trying to um, make myself clear and understood. As a child, I re- distinctly remember times when I just would basically just keep quiet most of the time because when I opened my mouth, I just couldn't really string, I couldn't like join the feelings I was having inside with the, with, with the, the, the words I needed to express them. I felt like there was a big gap between what was going on inside and what I was able to express on the outside. It was very frustrating. And I've, that feeling has come back to me many, many, many times. Maybe it's a sort of um, a childhood family thing. I don't mean to kind of complain or, or point the finger at members of my family because, you know, I love them all. But you know what, it, what it's like in a family you, you sometimes get a kind of pecking order in the family or sometimes uh, you, you struggle to kind of impose yourself in, in a family situation and that leaves an imprint on you. But I grew up um, with obviously my mum, my dad and my brother James, who's older than me. And I always thought that, especially especially my dad, who is a talker, and but my brother as well, it might not be so noticeable for you if you listen to this podcast, you listen to the two of us together. I'm the host of the show and he's a guest, you know, so that makes me sort of perhaps in the higher status position in a way. But I always felt like I just couldn't really get a word in between my dad and my brother in particular, but also my mum to an extent. I think she probably felt similarly but always situations at the dinner table or whatever, when there were conversations going on, it would always be dad and James who would sort of be dominating the conversation. I would try to say things and I would end up not really making much sense. And there was always this sense that someone was going to jump in. Someone was going to interrupt me. And maybe that's the, maybe that is the rambling thing that I kind of second guess myself. So I'll be talking about something and then mentally there will be, um, 
another thought which challenges what I'm saying. And then I have to kind of talk about that and deal with that, which leads to that. So I'll be saying, oh, you know, this is the situation. Oh, but, you know, also this. And then, you know, because I'm sort of mentally prepared for someone to, to come in and interrupt me, you know, and cut me off. It's a weird thing. Maybe that's why I started doing this podcast in the first place, just to be like, all right, everyone else, go away. I'm now going to just sit here with a microphone and actually, this is my chance to be heard. This is my chance actually to like complete my thoughts. I don't know. This this sounds like a therapy session now, doesn't it? A little bit. But, um, you know, I don't know. I I find it quite interesting understanding the psychology of why we do things. Um, It's hard not to analyse yourself. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Amber. I said at the beginning that this is a a treat. I do feel like that. I think... um, um, you know, you got to, you got to feel lucky sometimes in the presence of uh, your friends and family and stuff. It's it's a good feeling to just sit down with someone and just really listen to them and appreciate them and stuff. So thanks very much to Amber for coming on the episode today to talk about her stories. Check out her podcast, guys. She puts work into it. Um, she adds some atmospheric sound effects and stuff to the episodes. The episodes are not too long. They're not as long as my episodes. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Some of you might think, oh, the episodes are only 20 or 30 minutes long. That's not quite enough. And then other people will be like, no, 20 or 30 minutes is perfect. Luke's episodes are too long. Yeah, well, we've been through that before. Actually, not that many people think my episodes are too long. I think maybe I'm just a bit sensitive about that. I think most people are fine with it. It's all good. Everything's fine. I'm recording this on on a Thursday. It's the 27th of April today. To, to, just to give you a sense of like where I am in terms of this weird time loop situation that I'm in. Uh, 27th of April. Uh, the baby is due to arrive at the beginning of July. We're just getting ourselves ready for it. <laughs> we we don't have we don't have curtains or blinds on our windows. We moved into our flat um at the beginning of last year. Sort of basically right at the end of last year, the beginning of of the year. We moved in just before Christmas, moved all the stuff in and then immediately went off to my parents to to celebrate Christmas and spend some time. Then we came home to the total chaos of our apartment which had been refurbished, you know, they did work on it. A lot of problems, lots of little problems, like the fact that the the space for the washing machine wasn't the right size, so we didn't have a washing machine for ages, we didn't have an oven or a dishwasher, lots of little issues that needed to be sorted out. If, you, if you've been listening to my podcast for more than a year, then you've heard me talk about those things. Um, so uh, anyway, why, why, yeah, that's it. So, and we still haven't put up curtains or blinds on the windows. So we've got like our our living room and bedroom are connected. Like the main bedroom and the living room are are connected, and they share uh, the face of the of the building, right? So the the windows. Uh, light comes through the windows into the living room and into the bedroom. And they don't really have curtains. (laughs) Uh, We've got some curtains on the bedroom part. But then between the bedroom and the living room, we've also got uh, a window. 
So we actually knocked a hole in the wall and put a big window there in order to open the place out a bit more. Okay, so uh, we've got a curtain in the bedroom, which kind of gives us some privacy, but the light still comes shining through the living room windows and then shines through into our bedroom. Now, the reason I'm saying this is, I, I don't know really why I'm telling you this, other than um, the fact that it fits in with my whole ethos of, you know, hopefully providing you with engaging things to listen to and keeping things personal because learning a language is a deeply personal process. So maybe teaching a language should be a personal process too. So anyway, um, so the baby is arriving and we're trying to get everything ready. And you know, when a, when you've got a newborn baby, you, you need like the right conditions. You need peace and calm and quiet. You need a stress-free environment. And you also need to be able to control the amount of light that comes in because you need the, the the child needs to sleep you know it's really important the kid needs to, to have hours and hours of sleep every day and night um, and so sleep is a really important thing so I'm stressing out about that about covering the windows now you might think it's easy Luke just get some curtains yeah it's not as simple as that the the the, the apartments it's got a, it's got a, some weird idiosyncrasies to it one of those things is that it it's for some reason, the space where you would put curtain rails is not quite right because there's a wall next to one of the windows that means you can't get the curtain rail. The curtain, ah, it's just, it's just a nightmare. Um, so, and so maybe blinds, we can put blinds up above the windows, you know, blinds that roll down. But my wife's not keen on that. She doesn't really like the way that, that they look. So we're stuck in this kind of limbo land of like, we've got, you know, the, the, the birth of the child is fast approaching and we still don't have any way of creating darkness in our flat. This is, this is a nightmare and we can't quite agree on how we want to cover the windows. Now, my, my wife thought that she'd solved the problem when she decided that we could fit uh, shutters to the outside of the windows, right? On the front of the building, we could fit shutters. None of the windows on our building have got shutters on them. These are like wooden doors that you can close on the outside of the window to completely block out the light. None of the, none of the other apartments have got shutters. So we thought, oh, maybe the, maybe the building won't allow us to put shutters on. She contacted the people who run the building, and apparently it's okay. We can do it. So she then uh, arranged for a, a person to come and give us a quote. And <laughs> so first of all, it's going to cost thousands and thousands of euros, which is ridiculous. But also, the person who came, she said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to take seven to nine weeks. Seven to nine weeks. Presumably, it'll take them this amount of time to make the shutters and then to have them done. I mean, everything takes so long. It's so annoying. And of course, seven to nine weeks, that's pretty much... I mean, it's not going to be seven weeks, let's be honest. It'll be, it'll be longer. The, the longer option, not the shorter option. And that will be too late. That's the end of July. So that's, that idea is out. So, um, you know, I'm just thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do? How are we going to get the right darkness, you know, in the level of darkness in the room so that the baby will sleep. And then yesterday, uh, my wife and I in the morning, you know, kind of got up and stuff, got, got our daughter ready for school and stuff. And we looked out the window and we noticed like these ropes coming down. We could see this big rope swinging outside. Like, what's that? We looked up and there are guys on the roof of the building directly next to us. 
And, you know, because we live in Paris, we live in uh, an apartment which is, uh, you know, linked directly to the next building. It's like one long terrace of apartments. So next door is like very close to us. We looked out the window. There's guys putting up scaffolding on the building next to us. And we thought, oh, God, no. So they're building scaffolding because they're doing some work on the roof and the front of the building next to us. I just thought, oh, God, they're definitely not going to be finished before the beginning of July. I can just smell it. And so my wife talked to them when she went out to work. She stopped and talked to the guys. And they said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's scheduled to be finished at the end of July. Of course. So that means we're going to have guys hammering, probably drilling, sanding, doing God knows what else, directly outside our window, more or less. Um, and it's going to be July, which probably means it's going to be like worryingly hot because there's always a horrendous heat wave because, you know, that's the way it is now, isn't it? Because of, you know, climate change and stuff. So it's going to be boiling hot. We'll need to have the windows open. But then there's going to be guy there'll be guys drilling and hammering. So we've got we've got scaffolding on our left. Also the building opposite us is covered in scaffolding and there's guys doing work there, drilling, sanding, whatever it is that that they're doing. Um and that that <laughs> that work is scheduled to go on until 2027 or something ridiculous. So it's basically like living in a building site. So we're going to be, you know, we're going to be looking after a baby in a bright, brightly lit, very sunny, boiling hot building site. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, of course, I'm slightly nervous about this. It'll probably be okay. But it's one of those things where you're just like, for God's sake, very annoying. Anyway, did you need to know that? No, you didn't need to know that. But anyway... I thought I'd just give you a little update on my life there. <laughs> when you when are you going to be listening to this? Let me just check my my list, my schedule here. You're going to be listening to this probably around the middle of May. Okay, so yeah, I expect that the yeah the baby won't have arrived by then. Hopefully, that would be bad news if it did. But um, hopefully, the, the yeah, so you'll be listening to this. Sometime around the middle of May, so um, I, I will hopefully by. So, as you're listening to this, we'll probably be sort of like trying to put up blinds in our flat and uh, just mentally preparing ourselves. Anyway, yeah, there you go. So I'm. This is the this is the ending part of episode eight hundred and twenty-four. No, it's episode eight hundred and twenty-eight actually, and I think it's probably June when you listen to this, unless you listen to this in July or August or September or indeed one of the other months that we have in the in the in the ear. No, you don't have months in your ear. Uh, I mean year. Okay. <laughs> All right. This little bit that I'm recording now. This is, I'm recording this in May, the end of May. So time has just completely broken down. The whole concept of time has has been splintered here uh, for, for me. But anyway, everything's all right. I talked about uh, 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 curtains and building work and stuff. Those people who were doing work on the building next to us, they haven't really made a lot of noise. So I think that's not going to be a problem. And in terms of curtains and blinds and things, 
we're working on curtains. But that's a long story. Maybe I'll tell you more at the end of the next episode. But anyway, I've interrupted myself here. I've come back from the future, which is actually the present, to go to the past, which is actually your present, in order to uh, interrupt myself for some reason. I can't even remember why. That's it, to correct the fact that this isn't episode 824. It's episode 828. Are you keeping up? I hope so. Let's carry on. But yesterday I recorded the intro and ending for episode 825. And then the week before that, I did the intro and endings for episode 827 and 828. I don't know why I'm doing everything in the wrong order. It's just the way it's going at the moment. This is the time loop that I'm trapped in. So anyway, there you go. That's just life, isn't it? Life is crazy, but you've got to try to hold on and enjoy the ride, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's the end of this ramble at the end of this episode. Um, Any other bits of admin I need to give you? P48, premium episode 48, parts one and two. It should be available now. Okay. So if you are a premium subscriber, check it out. Now, this is what I always say because it seems a lot of people don't really know about how to actually listen to the premium episodes. Let me just remind you, okay? You need to go to Acast Plus. Hold on. In fact, just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. And then you can log in in the top right-hand corner. Log into your Acast Plus account. Okay? And that's where you can find your subscription. You can manage the subscription there including cancelling it if you really want to, but God knows why you would want to do that. But you can also there, you can listen to the episodes there if you want, but I highly recommend that you do not use the Acast Plus page to listen to the episodes. Don't do that, okay? It seems a lot of people are doing that. It's a mistake. It's not a good good way to listen to the episodes um, because if you pause, it won't remember where you stopped. And also, you can't find the links for the PDFs and videos. So I'm gonna, I've said it before. I'll say it again. What you must do is add LEP Premium to a podcast app on your phone or to something like Google Podcasts on your computer. So you sign in to Acast Plus, teacherluke.co.uk slash premium top right hand corner to log in okay and then when you've done that you'll see luke's english podcast premium if that's the one that you've signed up for and you've got a couple of options you've got like listen to the episodes and then you've got listen in podcast app click that if you do it on a computer it will give you a qr code scan the qr code with your phone and then choose the podcast app you've got on your phone and click that and then subscribe to the feed that that arrives and then Bob's your uncle you will be subscribed to LEP premium on your on your phone and you'll be able to go through the list and find all the premium episodes there okay um, otherwise on a computer when you see the QR code click more options underneath and then you'll have the option to add uh, LEP Premium to Google Podcasts on your computer. Click it, it'll open Google Podcasts in your internet browser, subscribe to the feed that's presented to you, and then there you go, you've subscribed to Luke's English Podcast Premium on Google Podcasts. And every time you go back to Google Podcasts, if you're signed in with your Gmail account, then you'll be able to access all the episodes, including the premium ones. Okay, so you must do that. That's the best way to do it. I think a lot of people don't 
add the show to an app or to Google Podcasts. And as a result, they don't really listen to the episodes. They don't really take advantage of the content. So I highly recommend that you do that. And uh, you will see then, if you have done that, you'll see that P48, it, sh- it should be available. It should be available now. Um, okay. And that is uh, another story time episode where I tell you a story and then use it to teach you some English vocab, grammar, pronunciation. Okay. All right, then. Good. So just a little reminder. If you've listened all the way to the end, all the way to this point, then congratulations. You are a super duper extra special listener for getting all the way through to this point. There, there aren't that many of you who who survive up to this this stage in the episode. So well done to you. You deserve a little medal and another round of applause for doing that. <clears throat> Talking of rounds of applause, yesterday I did some stand-up. Um, I did uh, some stand-up at the Montmartre Comedy Club. In fact, it's it was the French fried comedy show at the Montmartre Comedy Club in a little sort of bar restaurant uh, in a touristy part of Paris, up on the hilltop near the Sacré-Cœur. And uh, I did some stand-up there. I've been doing stand-up there uh, most Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings. And um, the show is run by Robert Hain, who's been on this podcast before. Um, and uh, so I did a set. I did about 15 minutes. Did some stuff about Brexit. Did some stuff about the BBC the way that newsreaders talk. I did that classic old material that I've done lots of times before, but actually I hadn't done it for ages. So it was nice to do that again. And I was able to sort of improvise a little bit on that. And it was really good fun. There weren't that many people in the audience. I think we had about 10 or 15 people. So a very small audience, but it was really good fun. And there was a Lepster in the crowd. Crowd. (laughs) It wasn't exactly a crowd. There was a Lepster in the room. Uh, Michael from Germany. Hello, Michael, if you are listening. It was very nice to meet you. And uh, it was good fun. It's nice to be up on stage doing stand-up. Follow me on, probably on Twitter. It's maybe the best way to keep up with things like that. Um, At English Podcast on Twitter. That's where you can find me there. If you want to know if I'm doing stand-up. Otherwise, just get in touch with me. If you're coming to Paris and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to go and see some stand-up, get in touch with me. Get in touch with me by email, luketeacher at hotmail.com, or uh, with a website comment, or on Twitter. Those are the best ways to do that. Uh, I am on Instagram, but I never use my Instagram account. It's just there's there's not enough time, you know, not not enough hours in the day for me to sort of keep up with all these different social media accounts. I, I hardly ever go on Facebook these days. I don't know. I just find Facebook to, uh, I don't know. It's done now for me. It's sort of just don't, I don't know what it is, but I just don't really derive any pleasure from going on Facebook anymore. I don't know. I don't know why. So if you want to get in touch with me, uh, website, email, Twitter, I think those are probably the best places. Okay. Right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this ending part, uh, in the audio podcast here. I've said before, um, the video versions don't don't get these these bits of gold, okay? They don't feature these magic moments where I ramble in the beginning and ending of episodes. So if you are an audio listener, then you know this is for you, okay? Because this is an audio podcast. My YouTube is is blowing up at the moment. Uh, I mean, it's 
it's it's it's being successful. I don't mean like like what happened to your YouTube? Oh, it blew up. You know, I don't mean that. If you say something is blowing up, it can mean that it's kind of becoming really successful. My, my YouTube channel is doing rather well at the moment. It's YouTube's a funny one. I've talked about this before as well. Now, you know, this is not a statement about the audience on YouTube, right? Because, you know, I've got an audience of lovely, lovely people on YouTube. When I talk about YouTube, I talk about the, 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 um, the platform itself and the way that the platform behaves. It's a totally different beast to podcasting. With podcasting, an episode arrives of the podcast that you're subscribed to, and you choose to listen to it. You put your phone in, in your pocket and you listen. And you're with, hopefully you're with me for the duration. Maybe something happens in your life and you have to stop, you know, um, and then maybe you can carry on later. But normally when people listen to podcasts, they tend to kind of stay with the show, with the episode for a, for a longer period. On YouTube, it's always a bit of a fight to keep people engaged all the way through. And I expect the number of people who listen all the way through to the end of my my episodes on YouTube is probably lower than the number of people who get to the end of episodes on uh, in the podcast version. Uh, what am I talking about? Why did I start saying this? So yeah, that's it. But I, you know, but I want you to know that I still love podcasting, and this f- first and foremost is the thing that that this, that, you know, that's that's what this is all about. This is a podcast, and I, I I've been putting my videos up on YouTube, putting video versions of these episodes up on YouTube in the over the last year or two. Ever since I essentially got a better computer. Uh, that had more storage and kind of learn actually how to do the video stuff. And YouTube's always been a bit of an experiment, really. It's kind of like, right, I'm doing the podcast. That is sure. I make my episodes and I publish them and I know how to do that. And that's all sorted and done. But also I'm going to play around with YouTube and try and, you know, add content there as well. And if I can make video content without it messing with the podcast format, then I'll do that and I'll publish it on YouTube and, you know, we'll see. And some of the episodes have really kind of uh, gone viral, it seems. Or at least maybe the YouTube algorithm has decided, hmm, this is the kind of content that we want to promote. And so some of my episodes on YouTube kind of kind of um, get lots of views, which is really cool. But that obviously also brings with it um, a lot of comments from people who don't know the show. Comments from people who have only just discovered my work and my episodes. And so there's <laughs> a lot of people have got no clue. I mean, you know, that's not their fault. But people are saying, oh, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could do that. It's like, already done. Already done that. I've been doing this for 14 years. I've covered most of these subjects before. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. It's pretty weird. But it's great as well. It's really cool. Anyway, I tried to stop rambling, didn't I, about, about five minutes ago. But that's it now. Um, uh, send me a message, all right? Leave a comment. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Uh, for this episode on my website um, get in touch with me on social media or something let me know your thoughts let me know your your feelings that you the, the feelings that well up inside you when you listen to my episodes it's nice to get some kind of response from you okay all right then good so i'll speak to you in the next episode okay everybody but for now it's just time to say goodbye bye 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.